Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning back in. Today is another day. It is Monday, March 27th, and this is today's episode of Ag News Daily. Joining me, Mike Pearson, is my co-host, and I learned last week, former Miss Iowa contestant, Delaney Howell. <laughs> Delaney, how are you? Oh, I'm good, Mike. Thank you for that nice introduction. Yeah, of course, you know, people got to know. You gotta, it's all about sales. Um, That's right. How you feeling today? You in a good mood? I am in a good mood. This weekend, my alma mater, Northwest Missouri State, won the Division II Championship for basketball, and they made history because that's the first time in Division II history that a school has won championships for both basketball and football, which we won back in December. Wow. Wow, really? Yeah. Putting them up and knocking str- them down. Strong, down there. strong sports, sports school, that's for sure. I guess so. What did you play down there? Um, I played extracurricular games. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah I played I was, an I was almost and, varsity you know. beer pong. Yeah, I was going to say, I did a little beer pong back in the day, but, uh, yeah. yeah. Vodka chugging. That counts. Right. <laughs> Great. I'm sure, I'm sure our, our listeners are going to appreciate this. Oh, my mom doesn't listen. She knows anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness! All right, so that's that's the big news. Do we have any that's, other news yeah. breaking uh, today? Well, ag news wise, there are a few things that I think we should mention before we go into some great interviews later. Yeah. Um, the National Biodiesel Board released a statement. Oh, I believe it was last Friday, the twenty fourth. So that would have been Friday, right? Yep. Yeah. And anyways, they released a statement saying that Argentina and Indonesia have been violating trade laws by dumping subsidized biodiesel into the U.S. market. So they filed a petition Friday um, for anti-dumping and countervailing duty petition. So their claim is that biodiesel is violating trade laws by flooding the U.S. market and so far, that's cost U.S. manufacturers more than 18 percentage points of market share. Oh, and I know, I mean, we'll find out later, hopefully either this week or next week. I've been in contact with some people at the National Biodiesel Board and working to get an interview to really summarize and explain what's going on. Okay, good. So hopefully we'll, uh, we'll be able to bring some more clarity to that issue and what this looks like going forward. Yes, but what do you have going on? What well, news have you found? You know, a bit of sad news down in Georgia. They are doing the same thing that we did here in Iowa two years ago. They have suspended all poultry exhibits down there out of fear of spreading bird flu. Now, it's my understanding, and Delaney, you followed the bird flu story more closely than I have. There haven't yet been any outbreaks in Georgia. Is that correct? That is correct. So far, just Alabama, Tennessee, and Kentucky. Okay, and Wisconsin with that low path yes. that I think yep, they that's got right. nipped in the bud. So I guess they're just trying to take some preventative measures. But uh, yes. you know, if it's anything like it was here, I know at our, I believe it was at our local county fair, they uh, had had the kids who were showing bring in pictures of their birds, and then they just talked about with the judges what they learned and. Yeah, oh. it was, yeah, it still worked. It was kind of interesting. That worked. Yeah, it does, definitely. It maybe gives you more of the idea of what they're doing and shows really who's been working with their animals and who hasn't. Right. Yeah, I think some of those things came to light. So uh, so that's yeah. a little sad news down there. What, what else do you have? Well, I follow agriculture 
Nature Politico, which is a daily newsletter. I would recommend it, highly recommend it to anyone who doesn't yet subscribe. It's a daily email blast. And this morning I was reading through and the Farm Bill has been in their newsletter continuously. And they said it's 552 days until September 18th, 2018, which is when the Farm Bill expires and a new one needs to be in place. So this week there are two subcommittees meeting to discuss a few things that are going to be important in the upcoming Farm Bill, such as the general farm commodities and risk management. And then also members of the subcommittee of the nutrition and supplemental nutrition assistance program, which has been obviously on the docket for a while. So those are some things to watch as we near that 2018 mark for when a new farm bill needs to be in place. Yeah, and you know, I think, uh, I tell you what, I will eat my hat if we actually have a new farm bill on the date the old one expires. I, I, I know. would bet dollars to donuts that we end up extending this one at least to uh, get us through that uh, 2018 election cycle. You know, speaking of, uh, of changes on the global scale, there was an announcement over the weekend that China, Chile, Chile and Egypt have all lifted their bans on Brazilian beef imports. So there was some concern this last week. There were boats already headed to China full, filled with Brazilian beef. Oh, what are we going to do when they get there? Well, China's gone ahead and has let those, those imports return to their market. And uh, a lot of folks are saying that's what's really hitting the market, the live cattle and feeder cattle markets hard today. Yes, and we have a guest coming up to discuss that a little bit more in depth. But before we do that, Mike, do you want to read the closing markets for today? I certainly do. Let's bring us up to speed here. We'll start in the corn pit. May 2017 corn closed down half a point at 355 and three quarters. Deese corn up half a point at 380 even. Over in soybeans, May beans down four and a quarter at 971 and a half. Novi beans down six at 971 even. No carry in that market. In the wheat pit, Chicago wheat May contract down four cents at 4.20 and three quarters. December wheat also down four at 4.69 and three quarters. Taking a look over at the live cattle trade, here's where we've kind of got a bit of a bloodbath. Live cattle, April down 102.5, closed the day at 121 and seven and a half cents. Looking down at feeder cattle, they were down a dollar 22 and a half, closed the day at 132.15. And lean hogs not exempt from this drop. The April contract down $1.62.5, closed the day at 65.65 even. Delaney, boy, we've got a lot to discuss on the market front today. What do you think we uh, introduce our grain analyst for the day? Yeah, let's do that. Joining us is Elaine Cobb. She's been on the podcast before. And as always, she has lots of great advice. All right, folks. Well, we're back today with uh, one of our, I guess we can call you a regular contributor now, the uh, author of Mastering the Grain Markets, Elaine Cub. Elaine, welcome back. It is a pleasure. You guys are doing a great podcast. Well, thanks well, for Thank you. In. Yeah. Elaine, tough day. We saw corn kind of bounce around, uh, end of the day mixed, but you know, what's, what's moving these markets today? Um. Everything sort of all over the globe had kind of a down day. The stock market was down quite a bit. Oil is below $48. The U.S. dollar absolutely 
took a nose dive into the mud puddle. Uh, crude palm oil is down. Everything is down. All of the grain markets are in a downward trend, and they have all hit 2017 contract lows. So it was one of those days. Oh, boy. Not a whole lot of fun, then, as you look out there. What happened to, to cause the dollar to break so hard? Well, <clears throat> I mean, uh, so you've heard the phrase irrational exuberism, exuberance, right? Of course. Yeah, so I think so far through the year of 2017, I think there was a lot of um, thoughts or optimism or just sort of guesses that the U.S. government would take on projects that would really juice up the economy, like build more infrastructure, spend trillions of dollars on that, cut taxes for businesses, which the stock market thought was great, and everything was going to be great. And I don't really want to get into too much political commentary, but I think that investors are starting to realize that incompetence, and just bad ideas are not really going to be able to deliver all of that fantastic Christmas wish list quite as quickly as they realized. And that's why the stock market is falling apart, and that is why the U.S. dollar is also really suffering. Gotcha. Mostly pr uh, predicated on the failure of the health insurance reform, I'm guessing. Kind of drove right. that I mean, point home. Yeah, I think that the the executive branch is just in the Congress. Everybody has just sort of d demonstrated that things aren't going to be as easy to get done as, I don't know, stock market investors previously hoped. So do you expect the rest of the week to look in the red like this? I mean, where do you see it plateauing? Um, so for the grains, that's a really hard question. To, I mean, on any normal week, yeah, I would expect them to sort of bounce around with, with the outside markets. But this is a special week for grain markets. As you guys know, there is that um, quarterly stocks report coming up, prospective right. plantings report coming up, which you've talked about on previous podcasts here. So, um, so, so it's hard to say what grains will do. I think that the dollar will probably recover somewhat back into the 100 level. I mean, it was there before January ever happened. So, so I wouldn't worry too much about that. But I will, I will mention one more thing about the grains is that these losses that they've had, I think there's been six straight sessions of losses. They've just been sliding and sliding and sliding. That has been happening with fairly low volume of trading. There's not a lot of commercial trading going on. The speculative traders have been adding short positions. They haven't really been liquidating too much. They've been adding short positions. Um, but the whole day-to-day -day trading volume is just not huge. So so whether they follow the outside markets in a day-to-day -day direction is one thing, but there's really not a huge amount of, of transactions going on. Everybody's just sitting on their hands waiting until Friday. Is that your read of the situation? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I think especially from the commercial side of the market, absolutely. Nobody wants to get in the way of whatever is going to happen on Friday. Did you have a question, Delaney? Yeah, I did. I just didn't know if you had something else to ask first. No, throwing it to you. <laughs> okay. All right. Do you want to cut this part out? <laughs> no, I think we'll leave it in there. This is how the no, sausage is made. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay, great. So, Elaine, you tweeted yesterday, I think it was, this article about Mexico eyeing duty-free corn from Brazil and Argentine markets. What do you make of that? 
Yeah, and I want to say, you know, Delaney, it was on a Sunday evening, and I did sit and kind of ponder whether I should even tweet anything on Sunday evening. I didn't know if anybody was on Twitter on Sunday evenings, and it turns out they <laughs> are. Yeah, they so are. it was interesting. Well, that and that's the day that the, it was a Financial Times article, very well written, very well researched. Um, and so I, I thought that people would find it interesting. Um, yeah, the the idea is that Mexico doesn't want to be caught in a bad negotiating position if um, you know, if the U.S. continues to be antagonistic towards our number one corn customer, which mm-hmm. is Mexico. So, uh, <clears throat> yeah, in the event that NAFTA got canceled, which, you know, God help us, that's probably not going to happen. But if, if that happened, Mexico is is creating conditions so that U.S. farmers would have 194 percent tariffs effectively and Brazilian and Argentinian corn exporters would have zero duties going into Mexico Ooh. effectively. So it would be bad news. I mean, so let's let's hope that that cooler heads uh, get everybody straightened mm-hmm. out and, and NAFTA is, is safe. Yeah. With that 194 percent tariff, what does that mean for prices for farmers exporting? You know, that's it's uh, golly, that's a really important question of how that would back up to our farm prices. I mean, obviously to the, to the Mexican consumer, that's, you know, more than doubling. So rather than buying $3 corn or $4 corn or whatever it is right now, FOB Mexico, it would be $6 corn or $8 corn. But to the U S farmer, I don't know. I would have to, it's not bullish. That's for sure. Oh no, it's not bullish. And it would, it, it would change the trade patterns and it would make basis a lot cheaper, especially in the South you know, the Southern Plains, Texas mm-hmm. areas like that. And really along any rail lines that move that move yeah. substantial grain into Mexico. Exactly. And that kind of tees up my next question, Elaine. When you look at uh, really the first, I guess one of the major things that has been accomplished in this presidency, Donald Trump last week issued an order authorizing, or at least authorizing his State Department to authorize completion of the Keystone XL pipeline. And I know you have done a lot of work with pipelines um, and how they impact the grain market. So two questions. A, does TransCanada still want to build something like that with $48 crude? And B, if it got built, would it benefit our grain producing friends in, in North Dakota in particular? Okay, uh, first part of your question. I mean, I think the, the U.S. oil producing industry would argue that when crude oil is at $48, it's all the more important that they have cheap, uh, cheap transportation, that they're able to reduce their transportation spreads between North Dakota and refining points. Um, I think that they would be absolutely as interested in getting a nice cheap oil pipeline transportation as ever. Makes sense. So, that was an easy question. Thanks okay. for that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, what was the second part? Oh, does it, it help? Does it help? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so so that was the, the thought even during the Dakota Access Pipeline um, permitting process is that if we get the oil off of the rail, then that helps free up some, you know, uh, space on the rail lines for grain, which was particularly important in you know, 2014, uh, the winter of 2014, grain cars were really backed up. Ethanol cars were really backed up because the rails, the railroads were kind of clogged with oil trains. Um, they're not as clogged right now, and they're not as clogged with coal trains, which is absolutely the biggest category of freight on U.S. railroads. So so there's not that sort of 
clogging scenario right now in the U.S., but it certainly could happen again. And I think that it should be in our interest to keep as much traffic off of the rail lines of any kind as we can to keep them open for grain, just grain. Let's only have grain on our railroads. But um, that not being the case, uh, I think it's still the case to be made that it's safer. You know, I don't, I don't love the idea of those big oil trains going through communities and with the potential of falling over and spilling and catching on fire and killing people. Right. Keep it underground. Yeah. 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 Isn't that what they say anyway? Keep that oil underground. Well, we can do that with a oh, pipeline. Yeah. No, and, and it, I'll, I'll say this about the the environmental aspect of it is, you know, people are going to demand that oil. If you, if I think if environmentalists want to to change how much oil is used in the country, they need to change how much is used, or how much is demanded. If it's going to be demanded, it's going to get shipped to those consumers one way or another. You right. know, I, I, I don't think that, that attacking the infrastructure, the transportation and the infrastructure is the way to achieve any change. Well, Elaine, that was a lot of policy there for you, but I hate that. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. It's always interesting to hear what you have to say. We've had lots of positive comments about your episode actually in particular. So Oh, well, that's good. I yeah. think that, yeah, like I said, you guys have a fantastic podcast going on there. Well, thank I hope you. That, I hope you get a lot of get a lot of good viewers or listeners, yes. I guess they are. We have need been. to get a lot yeah. of good money is what we need. Elaine. Yeah. <laughs> you can pass it on to your guests. You can yes. pay for. Yes, that would be good. That would be good. <laughs> well, Elaine, thank you again so much. And remind me your Twitter handle so our listeners that listen to our daily podcast can follow you on Twitter. Cause you know, like I said, you have a lot of good things that you share on there. Every once in a while, I come up with something good Delaney. Uh, my Twitter is at Elaine cub. So E L A I N E K U B Elaine cub. Thank you again so much to Elaine Cub, and make sure and follow her on Twitter. She really does have great things to say. She really does. Elaine is uh, is really, I think, one of the sharpest cookies in the box. But coming up next, we have another very, very sharp cookie. You know, that's a metaphor that I've never really understood. <laughs> I, I don't want to be eating a sharp cookie. Right? I want my cookies right. gooey on the inside. And soft, yeah. Yeah, it's still a little warm with some ice cream. But... Mm -hmm. uh, However you want to describe it, our next guest, Cassie Fitz at thebeefread.com. She's an independent analyst. She has, uh, oh gosh, she'll give us her history, but she has worked in all facets of the uh, livestock markets and right now is a consultant, and she is turned to by people around the world for her insights, and we had her talk to us today about what all is going on in the beef business. Should we throw it over to Cassie Fish? up in uh, rural Missouri, but I uh, went to Kansas State to uh, college, uh, found my way to Chicago, to the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, worked down there for about a decade. Were you trading Eventually cattle? made my, I beg your pardon, yeah, I was in the live cattle pit. Gotcha. Served on the live cattle advisory committee. Um, when I right. was, uh, I made my way to, was recruited by IBP. Uh, in 2000, and so as their senior director of risk management, so left Chicago for uh, the Sioux City, Iowa area, and uh, was there with the company six years, part of it in um, 
the you know Sioux City, Dakota Dunes, uh, South Dakota area, and then we. While I was there, I experienced a Tyson merger, so I was relocated to Northwest Arkansas, and then I left the company and um, uh, went into business for myself, and so I do a combination of uh, consulting, brokerage, uh, commentary, analysis, and I also co-own a company called Box B Forward, which is an online uh, pricing analytics uh, software for uh, buying and selling beef in the forward market. So if you were going to buy or sell beef, that's uh, 90 days or 12 months out. One of the things that I really like that you put out every single day is uh, thebeefread.com. You are the uh, well, you're the you're the author over there, correct? Correct. Yes. And how long have you been doing that? Uh, I came up with the idea to do that in the fall of 2013. Um, I, I started my career many, many years ago as a in the as a reporter, as a journalist. So I had a writing background. Um, I just felt like there was a, a, a lack of really accurate, uh, you know, news out there, information. I guess. Um, for the cattle feeder, even people in the meat side, that we just we were just kind of lacking uh, some discussion, and there were so many things going on, especially at the time with uh, you know the less and less negotiated cattle trading, and then the you know we the pits closed, and you know, and so there was a little, and then we saw more and more algorithmic type trading influencing you know futures trading and. And uh, I came up with the idea to write the blog, and it it really took off. Um, readership runs, oh, 1,400 to 2,200 uh, views a day, about 400,000 views um, a year now. Wow. wow. And it's, yeah, it's re- what's really amazing is it's read globally. It's been read in like 90-plus countries, and it's regularly viewed in Mexico, Canada, and Australia, especially, and also in Brazil. Makes sense. But uh, so that's and it's read by all. That the other thing is the cross section. It's read by traders and people, meat distributors, uh, retailers, uh, club store people, uh, you know, meat packers, cattle feeders, ranchers, and so uh, university folks. So that's that's. It was just kind of it. Just there wasn't any intention that that would happen. It. It, but it, it kind of gained a life of its own. So yeah, uh, that's, know, it's it's interesting. That's, you talk about how uh, there was no real source for news. You know, there is a million places to go for grain analysis and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But you're right on the cattle side, it's it's kind of slim pickings, and you've really got to dig for this kind of detailed information because you cover both the cash and the futures. I mean, you you integrate them in uh, in most of your writings. Yes, I do. Yes, because that's my world. I mean, that's been my world since I was nineteen eighty. You know, the early in the eighties when I got in this business has been uh, one foot in the physical side of the business and the other foot in the you know future side of the business. And so it's I basically grew up in the business that way. And and most people that have a lot of risk exposure are looking at. What I look at is really, it's pretty much what a lot of the larger corporate types that are involved in this industry would look at. Um, so that's, um, you know, that I think that's, it's, so it was a natural uh, approach for me to have. 
and it's because that's all I do really is <laughs> it's, it's either the case, you know, we're going back and forth between the two. So, yeah. So since you said you have readers from all over the globe, how do you utilize everything that's going on? I mean, how do you stay up to date on everything? I mean, obviously, trade is big right now negotiations for trade agreements how do you keep up to date on all of that well i'm lucky i guess uh that i have a lot of contacts that i have accumulated over um multiple decades in this business and uh that serves me i can find out uh, information just because i'm lucky to have you know put together a really excellent network of of colleagues and sources over the years and so that really is how I do it. I mean, I've, I, it's just experience. I mean, when I was at IBP Tyson Fresh Meats, I mean, I was, I was, I played the same role. I was responsible for finding things out and putting them in context. And so, um, it's the same. I just carry on with the same, you know, the same disciplines. It's the same disciplines that I've really had probably my entire career. Um, because it's, it's all about putting, Right, putting it all together and trying to determine what's relevant, what's really driving the market, and so on and so forth. So, I think that's just, that's just what I do. That's that's my profession, I guess. Well, yeah. And speaking of driving the market, here in these past well past four months, we've seen quite the rally in the live cattle trade, but it really picked up over the past two to three weeks. Tell us a little bit about what's happened to drive those, especially cash prices, so much higher. Well, I think it really began when the market bottomed back in October, and we, you know, I think in our, our Ognovdis production was up 9% from the prior year, but yet the, but the price has bottomed in October, and we really reignited or refound our beef demand on the retail level, and that's, that we kind of created a fantastic foundation to move a lot more beef through the supply chain. And with that, it it just it, we built on it ever since. And there was beef was you know out of favor because of its price point in 2015 and 2016. And it was if you study the monthly retail beef data, which the USDA releases, you'll see those retail prices really started to come down in September, October, November, and December. And the retailer was enjoying uh, you know box. Of course, the wholesale box beef prices reached the lowest level they've reached in 20, since 2012. And um, so even though the retail prices were coming down, they weren't coming down quite as dramatically. So there was still a lot of margin in that for the retailer. And and, and if, if you there was a recent study that just came out about the difference, the supermarket news put out about the difference between a grocery cart that has beef in it versus one that does not and how much it adds to, and it's kind of common sense, but they quantified it uh, and it was a, I don't know, 35% additional ring up at, at uh, the counter. So when you think about that, um, they've been very happy to have beef affordable again, and they've been featuring it aggressively, and it's carried on right into January, February, and March. And as a result, and of course, packing margins were also very, very favorable in uh, the same time frame, Ocnov Uh They tightened up some in January, but then widened back out in February and March, and that was really also, because um, retailers, of course, they plan ahead, they react a little bit more, you know, slowly than what we see in the spot cutout value, and so 
they continued to plan features. And then if you all ever look at the, I highly recommend um, folks to look at the comprehensive, um, the USDA comprehensive box beef report that comes out on Mondays, which includes all the way, all the different ways that beef is featured. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, sold. So that includes exports. It includes formulas, which is a primary way that meat is sold to the retailer, and it accounts for at least half of the beef sold each week. And then uh, the spot sales, of course, which is about 25 30%. And then also another category, which is the plus 22-day uh, window, and we started to see the retailer booking a lot of beef in that plus 22-day window and they was doing it week after week, and then it ran into month after month. And so from a year-to-date standpoint, I just looked at this last week, we have sold more beef out front, as we like to say, in the plus 22 window, uh, 22-day window, the most since 2011, I believe Ooh. it was. Wow. So that that is when – and so then when you think about it from a beef packer's standpoint, if he's got a lot of beef sold out front – then he has confidence, right? He wants to add the hours yeah. and to his slaughter schedule, and he wants to ramp things up, and that's exactly what we saw, which is why we've slaughtered 377,000 more cattle year-to-date as of last Saturday than a year ago, and now which this is week, significant. Are they still anticipating a, a very big kill? Last week's kill of 613 was the largest kill we've seen since prior to Thanksgiving, and it is the largest kill of the year. Interesting to point out, though, it is the second largest beef production because our carcass weights are now 15 pounds below uh, a year ago. So that's an indication that we're our cattle are you know our fed cattle marketings are more current. Yeah, and. And so to um, this week's a kill estimate is about 600 to 605,000, so it is not as large as last week. Um, but it's still very good. And, and, I, and actually it's worth noting, I think, that last week 613,000 head kill was very large for any week in March, I mean for that particular week in March. In fact, it's the largest for that particular week in March since 2012. Jeez. So the reason you're at, so you wanted to know why has the market been so strong, it's because there's competition for, you know, a more current uh, market-ready fed cattle supply. It's really that simple. And why is there? Well, for one thing, you know, there, as, you, as I'm sure you all know that, you know, there the supplies in the spring tend to be seasonally tighter just because of placement patterns. And then we have more cattle in the May, June, July period than we typically do in April and March. Um, so there's that. But we are also, because our slaughter rate has been so aggressive, we're more current on the front end, hence the weights being 15 pounds below, um, you know, last year, which is a lot. So you think about what that takes away uh, from, a, you know, total pounds to sell. Right. Yeah. So if you're you, if you're selling meat and you're you're maybe killing more, but the reality is is that last week's kill was still from a production pound standpoint was actually the second lowest for the year, huh. and it's simply because cattle are leaner, you know, greener. I mean, cattle are just right. more, are greener. They're so not, uh, as we like to say, not putting pounds on them like we were in the fall of 2015. Right. Right. No, and, and you typically weights uh, do seasonally go down, and they bottom around May, the first two weeks in May, and then 
you know, it's easier for cattle to put on extra fat as they go on into the fall, which is when, you know, weights top normally seasonally, but still it's a significant decline. And it's really that year-over-year um, comparison that gives us the perspective that we are more current. Um, the cattle feeding industry is more current in their marketings. And you can see that in the Friday's Cattle on Feed report as well with a 104 marketing number even with one less day, um, as we like to say, where there was one less um, slaughter day. So, uh, and that's again another interesting. That was interesting too because we have 2,000 head more cattle on feed than a year ago. Even even though there is this feeling there's more cattle, which of course we have expanded and and of course the the herd and there are more cattle available but they're outside the feed yard obviously if we only have 2000 had more on feed than a year ago as of now, March Cassie, 1st now Cassie we've been following the Brazilian beef scandal and um obviously now it's starting to near the end of the scandal and a lot of countries are lifting their suspensions but Let's say, hypothetically, some of those countries said, no, we don't want any more Brazilian beef for a while. What would that have done to the cattle industry? Well, it's, it's important to understand that um, the, type of, the primary type of beef that Brazil exports is more of a manufacturing or grinding nature. Not all of it, but a lot of it. So it kind of competes in that, um, you know, the 90 uh, percent chemically lean or the you know the cow beef category more so it's uh and so that is it competes more with australia and new zealand we don't export that type of beef we have imported that in the past and still do import some from australia so but what it you know if it had persisted it could have just you know made 90s beef 90s as we call them or grinding beef more expensive globally and uh, that, you know, ha- could have, you know, impacted the um, some fed cattle cuts potentially and, uh, if it had gone on long enough and to a significant enough degree because, uh, you know, I thought if more beef is going from Australia and New Zealand to China and Hong Kong, which are the two biggest consumers of Brazilian beef, then conceivably less would be coming here. You kind of get the... Yeah, Get maybe would have put some more upward pressure on market cow prices than on a true fed cattle, fat steers that are a little bit more marbled. Exactly. Okay. And, you know, you know, another question I've been thinking or pondering about, JBS, one of the companies I think that was involved in the scandal, has a lot of operations and ties to the United States. So with that, is there a way that they could still have brought that – beef into the United States, even if, you know, a ban would have been pushed on the floor? No, the my, the USDA had instituted some additional testing for any Brazilian beef that would reach the U.S., but no, the, the company, UJBS, wouldn't be able to, um, you know, bring anything in without the USDA's knowledge. And the only change the, that the U.S. did make around Brazil was to put it under additional testing scrutiny. I think some additional E. coli and salmonella testing. So um, no, and JBS also owns oper. I mean, they're a global company, so they own operations in Australia as well. So right. uh, yeah. 
So now we've talked quite a bit about the past. It's been a, a, quite an interesting past four months, in particular past three weeks. Today, watching the live cattle markets were unchanged to slightly lower. Feeders a little bit lower, a little bit of weakness on the day. We saw a lot of fat supplies get pulled forward here. I mean, the packer is aggressively trying to own well into uh, April. What does the future hold? As you look out over the next, let's say, month through the end of April, are we going to see some stability in prices? Are you anticipating a setback? How are things setting up? Well, we it's not unusual to see some weakness in uh, beef prices in late March, and then we typically go on and make a higher high in the cutout in the second quarter, whereas fed cattle prices very typically top in March or the first half of April. Um, so I think that, you know, last week we averaged probably around 131, which was a new high for the year in fed cattle prices um, and the five area average. And I think that there is an anticipation that this week will be uh, lower. Uh, the Packers will be able to pull on their contracts next week. So that's going to take some of the pressure off of them. And, and so I think that cash cattle prices or fed cattle prices are going to start to stair step down. Um, I personally think they will come down fairly methodically and not because I think the front end is tight enough that it's, they're not, you know, that it will be difficult to just see the market, you know, uh, fall out of bed, so to speak, as we have, um, the last couple of years. I think it will be a more methodical decline and we'll have to see how demand continues to hold up. I mean, Typically, uh, May and June are your best beef demand of the year, and so it will be very interesting to see how demand holds up with the fact that now the box beef prices have rallied as much as they have here since um, the beginning of the year. So we'll uh, that kind of remains to be seen. But given the current, I mean, currentness is extremely powerful as far as cushioning the downside. So I think as long as we maintain the currentness on the front end and the basis is certainly, you know, suggesting to cattle feeders to, uh, you know, continue to sell cattle aggressively. Yeah. So uh, I would say the market's going to be working um, lower, but not uh, dramatically so because of the positive under, you know, underpinnings fundamentally. All right. Well, Cassie Fish, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Delaney, do you have any other questions? Well, I think uh, time-wise, you know, we've reached our limit here, but hopefully, Cassie, we can get you on again in the future to talk cattle markets with us. That would be great. I really appreciate the call, and it's great to meet both of you, and thank you so much. Have a great day. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you again to Cassie Fish. And if you haven't checked out the beef reads yet online, be sure and do so because there are a lot of great articles and great tips in mastering the beef markets. Yes, that is correct. And uh, she publishes a new one every single day. It is certainly worth the, the five, ten minutes it takes to skim through it, read through it, and uh, gain some value. Now, that was today's podcast. Delaney, what else do we have coming up this week? We have a lot of other great stuff and great interviews coming up this week. Like I mentioned earlier, we're going to try and get somebody from the biodiesel board either this week or next week. But besides that, tomorrow we have a longtime friend of mine, Natalina Sense. 
she has been spending the last year doing a YI farm blog for Beck's Hybrid Seed. So we're going to catch up with her and hear about her trip and just her overall thoughts about traveling to all 50 states. And later in the week, we're going to be interviewing a Northwest Missouri State professor, Connor Ferguson. He currently teaches at Northwest and specializes in weed management. So we'll be talking to him about some agronomic solutions, herbicides, and what's going on in the industry. That's right, because things are changing. We've got some uh, new chemicals on the market this year, new varieties to use, and we want to make sure we use them right so we can continue to have them going forward. Yes, that is correct. And with some anti-drift regulations coming about, you know, it's more important than ever to understand those chemicals. It is. Those mistakes can get costly. Yes, they can. Well, Mike, do you have anything else? I don't. I just want to wish everybody a very, very happy Monday, and hopefully we will see them all again tomorrow.